page 11. Uh, You remember where we got to at the end of the last session? Uh, Everything had been going in the right direction. We were excited. God's people in God's place under his rule, experiencing his blessing, rest on all sides from his enemies. It was looking a bit like an enlarged Eden in Israel. But then the problems of Eden returned. Solomon uh, stopped obeying God's word, brought curse upon the nation, and so the kingdom was split, and everybody ended up in exile, and we're left depressed uh, by the waters of Babylon. Now, when the um, when people talk about the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament Bible, they generally talk about it dividing into three. You'll see this um, in different places. Just worth mentioning this: they talk about the law and the prophets and the writings. Or Jesus, sometimes when he talks about a three, uh, about the Bible, uh, occasionally he could, refers to the whole thing as the law and the prophets. In other places, he refers to the law and the prophets and the Psalms. There's no one way of describing it. But when people, when people break it down into three, they generally talk about the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the confusing thing is that the prophets includes the former prophets, i.e. the history books that we've just been looking at, and what people call the latter prophets, which is what we normally call the prophets stuff that we are going to come to together now. Uh, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you very much indeed again for your word, and we want to go on praying for insight. But more than that, we want to pray that we might know you, and that in understanding more of you and your purpose for the world, that we might understand more of ourselves and our place in it, And we might be filled with your priorities for our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So generally when we talk about the the prophets, I'm not talking about it in that threefold division, including the the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. I'm talking about the the things that were written by prophets and are, uh, as page 11 has it there, the four major prophets as they're called, or they, Daniel, some people do or don't include in this, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets as they're referred to, or the twelve as they're sometimes called, uh, and you'll see then when they're written. Uh, to whom, when they're written, as best we know, and also um, a summary of what they're saying. That's not my summaries of what they're saying. Um, guy who used to be on our student team here, Ed Underhill, um, put that together of his best effort at trying to understand the message of each of those books. And it will give you a good start if you're trying to read any of them to think about what they are written about. But we're at the point of saying, in God's big plan for everything, uh, things are not going well at this point. Should we give up? Is there any hope? And this is when the prophets appear on the scene. And we're going to watch a video about the prophets before we talk about them a bit. Exciting. So the prophets, we've worked out who they are. The message of the prophets, as they, they summarized it there, I've got three slightly different headings on page 12 of the handout. Uh, the message of the prophets, three things. One, they denounce Israel's sin and call them to repent. Uh, they also denounce in places that the sins of the nations But the prophets, by and large, are targeted at Israel or at Judah and warning them about their behavior. When the nations are cited, it's generally to say, if God cares this much about the sins of the nations who aren't his people, 
Think how much more he cares about your sin because you are his people and you've already uh, received great blessing from him. So they are denouncing, um, they talked about them as being covenant enforcers or covenant lawyers. They're saying, remember what God said. This was his law. This was how you're meant to live and you're not doing it and there are going to be consequences for that. So they warn of God's judgment on their coming sin, but then they also make wonderful promises about what God's going to do in the future. In part, those include the, the promise of judgment on everything that's evil, uh, but also about the new thing that God is going to do in the world, or the renewed thing that God is going to do in the world, that God is still in charge of everything, He's still good, He still loves. He still wants to bless, and so he is going to keep acting in the world to achieve the purposes that he had right back in creation, of having one people in one place under the rule of one king and enjoying uh, his blessing. So they make glorious promises about what God will do in the future. And as you read through them, it just gets better and better. Uh, you, you kind of it's really worth spending some time thinking through the kind of the passages that are on the sheet under C there and reflecting on how wonderful it is uh, the stuff that God is going to do to them uh, and through uh, uh, and what God is going to do in the world that he's announcing through the prophets so I want to zoom in on one with you uh, which is Jeremiah 31 so he promises to bring an end to the exile. We're on page 658. He promises to bring an end to the exile. He promises a new exodus. Uh, and we are going to see now this promise of a new or renewed covenant. Why do I say new or renewed? Um, because the, the Hebrew word can mean either new, brand new, or it can mean new in the sense of renewed. Uh, and it's probably that renewed sense in which the word is used here. So it's not something entirely different to what God has done before, but it is a, a, a renewed version of it. So we're going to read um, Jeremiah 31 uh, and starting at verse 31. Just as we get there, remember the terms of the old covenant, uh, the, the terms of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant uh, back in Exodus. Uh, you're my people because I've saved you. And if you obey you will know my blessing. And if you don't, if you disobey, you will experience curse. And the people disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. So the people are constantly under the curse of God. And then Jeremiah 31 will start at verse 31 on page 660. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his neighbor saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
That is uh, one of the most significant passages in the whole of the Old Testament. Um, one of my professors from Bible College would argue that the that the terms of uh, the new covenant that are here set the pattern for how the gospel is presented in the New Testament in its entirety. That whenever the gospel is being presented, this is the framework within which it is coming. And it's maybe easiest to start at the bottom and work back towards the top to see the different parts of it, each of which is supremely exciting. So God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the the sins of God's people, the thing that is bringing curse upon them, this new renewed thing that God is going to do, is going to provide a permanent way for their sins to be forgiven, forgotten forever. So this is the, the ultimate solution to the problem of sin that we've been waiting for since back in uh, Genesis 3. Beyond the, the new peace, if you like, of that uh, is a new relationship. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That is, a, if you were to, to do a, a, want to do a thematic uh, overview of the whole Bible, you could do a lot worse than tracing it through, I will be their God and they will be my people. As you see it in Adam, as you see it in Abraham, as you see it in Israel, as you see it in Jesus, as you see it in the church, and as you see it in the new creation. When you get to Revelation 21, and we're getting so excited about no more tears and everything else, uh, it says there again, I will be their God and they will be my people. Really, it's that the whole purpose of God, this new relationship with them. And you see where it says, verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So here is the kind of the the democratization of the knowledge of God. It doesn't need to be mediated through uh, a prophet or through a priest, but everybody in the whole, in the community of God individually knows God. Uh, So we are collectively his people, but each one of us individually knows him uh, and has the benefit of that relationship with him. And then how do we know it's not just all going to go wrong again? Uh, Up in verse 33, a new power. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So the problem before was that Israel were trying to obey and they just kept failing. Um, One Old Testament lecturer I I knew wasn't a believer actually. He just talked about... uh, what did he call it, a genetic inability in the people of Israel to obey the law of God, congenital failure again and again and again. That's the story of the Old Testament. And God says, here's the new thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to take my law and write it on their hearts so that they will be empowered to obey me. That's the new thing that God is going to do. And he's going to do it in such a way that they won't make the same mistakes that they made last time. So we're very excited. The prophets are saying, you guys are doing badly. Judgment is coming on sin, but God hasn't given up on the world yet. He's going to do this new thing. And we're coloring in the detail of what the new thing is going to look like. And here it's going to be God's people. That's the emphasis. Living under his rule, and experiencing his blessing. 
there's not much chat of land here, but that's you see the main elements of the uh, Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. Let's just um, look at a couple more of these because they're so exciting. Go to um, Ezekiel 34 with me, please. So in Ezekiel 34, one of the things that God is doing, um, the, the God is described as the shepherd of his people, but then he puts shepherds, the leaders of Israel, under shepherds, if you like, in charge of them. And they are meant to teach them and to model godliness to them and to help them to live uh, in God's world, in God's way. And they fail abysmally. So if you just scan your eyes over the start of um, Ezekiel 34, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. We're on page 72 if you haven't got it. Prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord God, our shepherds of Israel have been feeding yourselves. Should not you be feeding the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you haven't strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you haven't bound up, the strayed you haven't brought back, the lost you haven't sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So in other words, you've been terrible shepherds of my people. Uh, therefore, uh, God is going to come against them. But uh, verse 10, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep. What is it that God's going to do? So verse 11, thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and will feed them on the mountains of Israel, the ravines and in the inhabited places. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall their shall be their grazing land. Then they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I'll seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. So this is God saying, I am going to come and be the true shepherd king of my people. These leaders who should have been the kind of the shepherd rulers should have been uh, caring for them in in the right way. They failed to do it, so I'm going to come. And again, you're getting the language of abundance. Again, you're getting the language of blessing. I'm going to come and do this thing personally that will mean that my sheep are treated in the way that they should be and get to experience my blessing in my world. Uh, If you flick over a couple of pages to Ezekiel 36, um, I don't think I've got this one on the sheets, but here's another one for you, Ezekiel 36. Let's start at verse 25. This is Ezekiel's big um, promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 25. God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, 
and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. So you see the same elements of it again. God's going to do this new thing. The problem is so deep that it's, it's a problem of the heart. And God says, it's okay, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to do something that will give you a new heart. And I'm going to put a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit within you, so that you're able to obey me. So that you're able to obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. So again, we've had these promises. Promise of this new thing that God is going to do as the means by which he's going to fulfill everything that he's been promising all along. And so far, if we've been tracking along, we know that someone's going to crush the head of the serpent. We know that they're going to be a son of Abraham. We know that they're going to be a son of David. Now we know that it's going to be God himself who comes. He's going to be a shepherd and he's going to do this new thing to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. And the key place in the whole of the Old Testament, and this is why you will come across these verses so often when you go to church, the key place where it is explained how it is that God is going to deal with the problem of sin once and forever is Isaiah 53. We know that God's going to work through his king. We know he's going to work through uh, in, in all the ways that we've been saying. But the means, the mechanism by which he's going to deal with the problem of sin is solved for us in Isaiah 53. In uh, Isaiah 40 through 55, we're being presented with God's servant, another category of someone we're looking out for. God's king, who will also be a servant. And Isaiah 53, uh, I'm going to read to us verses 4 to 6. It's really the the, the climax, the, the center point of all Old Testament prophecy for how God is going to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. Isaiah 53 and verses 4 to 6. Speaking of God's servant, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's hard to express just what a relief these verses are are when you're reading through the Old Testament. Page after page of sin, page after page of failure. It seems congenital. No one does it right for long enough. Every time it's getting worse and worse and worse. How is God going to deal with the problem of sin? And he's going to send a a king. He's going to send a servant. And that servant is going to be offered to die so that he can take upon himself the sins of his people and so that uh, he can take the punishment that those sins deserve in order that the people uh, might be free, that the sins might be remembered no more. This is the wonderful thing that God is going to do as the means by which his creation purpose is going to be fulfilled. So you lump all of that together And this is the way that God is going to solve the problem of sin once and for all, the way that the promises to Abraham and to David will be fulfilled. We get excited as we read through the prophets. 
longing and waiting for God to do this thing that he's always said that he's going to do to achieve his purposes forever. What happens as a result of the prophet's ministry? Well, some of what they say is fulfilled in part there and then. So they talk about a return from exile. And sure enough, the Persians um, rock up, they defeat Babylon, and the Jews are allowed to go home. Uh, God had prophesied that there'd be a new temple. And sure enough, when they get back, they build another temple, uh, a bit like the one that was there before. Um, uh, and, it, and we're excited about it. And Nehemiah rebuilds the, the walls of Jerusalem. And some people are keen to obey the Lord for a while. But then uh, old problems surface or resurface. Um, the temple that they've built, if you read in, um, I can remember the verse in Ezra or Nehemiah where some of the old men look at the temple that's been built, who remembered the first one uh, when they get back from exile, and they weep because they think, hang on, this is the new temple that God's been prophesying. You read Ezekiel 40 to 48, it seems like it's going to be this wonderful thing, perfection on earth. And they just look at it and they weep because they think this isn't even as good as the last temple that we had. So how is this the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God has done? And you read through the... um, the, the later prophets, you read through places like Ezra and Nehemiah, you read through Malachi, and you think, hang on, this was supposed to solve everything, but nothing has changed. So in those verses I put in Nehemiah, the temple's being abused, the Sabbath is being defiled, the Israelites are marrying foreigners, and you think, hang on, everything that was wrong in Israel that caused the first exile is still there. So this new thing that God's doing, going to do through his shepherd, servant, ruling king, uh, has not yet been done. And so we end the Old Testament waiting. Uh, The book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. Uh, God is saying again, behold, I am going to come. I am going to come. I'm going to judge I'm going to purify. I am going to come. It is worth it following me. doesn't feel like it always, but it is worth it following me. I am going to come. The day of the Lord is coming. And so we end the Old Testament still waiting and still wanting God to act. And then we get to Jesus. So, uh, flick over the page, please, to page 16, or a couple of pages. No, it's not 16. See, I've got a different version on my iPad. Page 14. That's the problem. Page 14. And we get very excited by Jesus. So, after Malachi, uh, hundreds of years of silence, uh, God has not raised up a prophet to speak to anybody and then Jesus comes and think about how exciting it would have been to hear could you turn to Matthew 3:17 and i know we know that Jesus is the answer by the way um but i'm hoping it will be 
that will be coloured in a bit more and we'll be a bit more excited about Jesus as we get to him now, coming to him in the context of everything that we've seen already. Think how exciting it would be for Jesus to turn up on the scene and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So God has been promising this kingdom for hundreds and hundreds of years. We've seen it patterned, we've seen it perish, we've seen it portrayed, we've seen it prophesied again and again and again, and it hasn't come yet. And then Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. And when he says it's near, it's at hand, he's not saying it's over there somewhere. He's saying the time of it has come. The kingdom of heaven has come. Because the king of heaven has come. So I am here. God is now establishing his kingdom in the way that he's been promising. So you guys need to repent. And it's interesting the way that the early chapters of Matthew work. In chapters 2 and 3 of Matthew, you'll see a whole chunk of places in which um, it's explicitly said. or um, In fact, the... Let's start the first one at um, 1 verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then a quote from uh, Isaiah chapter 7. And then uh, chapter 2 verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet. And then that quote from I think Micah 5 verse 2. And then you get to um, chapter 2 verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Chapter 2 verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, And then you get John the Baptist turning up on the scene. Uh, Chapter 3 verse 2. 3 verse 3 rather. This is what he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said. And then Jesus turns up on the scene in 314... Um, Jesus is about to turn up on the scene in 3.14 so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali by the the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned so all of the time it's being presented as God's been promising stuff for hundreds and hundreds of years And now is the moment that it's happening. The king is here. The kingdom is here. So repent and believe the good news. And the way that Jesus is presented to us in the Bible is as the fulfillment of everything that has been going on in the Old Testament. So there was a big debate among um, theologians for a while. What's the best way to understand Jesus? If he is both man and God... Do you best understand Jesus by starting with the fact that he's man and then working up to the fact that he's God? Or do you best understand Jesus by thinking about the fact that he's God and then realizing that he's man as well? And people went backwards and forwards on it and went for ages. The way that the New Testament presents it to us isn't like that, actually. It's that Jesus is the one who has come in fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the God-man who has come 
as the new king, as the servant, as the shepherd, as the son of David, as the son of Abraham. That's who he is. The way that you understand Jesus isn't by starting with Jesus and trying to work out everything about him. It's by seeing him as the fulfillment, the, the end point, the telos of the whole of the Old Testament witness. So, in terms of the kingdom, Jesus is the true people of God. One of the ways that he's presented to us um, If you flick to Luke chapter 3 with me, please. So in Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 23, you get this great big genealogy of Jesus. We know there's another one at the start of Matthew as well. And it goes through the son of 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 the son of. And it gets ultimately in 3 verse 38 to the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus, and then we're, so we're being told that Jesus is coming and he's being presented to us as like a new Adam. In uh, much more explicitly in uh, the Matthew one, he's being presented to us as a new Abraham. He's being presented to us as the son of Abraham. He's being presented to us as the son of David, as we'll see in just a second. But one of the questions that we're asking of ourselves is, who's been God's son so far in the Old Testament? And the answer is, well, Adam was the son of God, as it says here. And Israel was the son of God. Do you remember that? When uh, God said uh, in uh, Exodus 4.23, you are my son. Uh, David was God's son. Psalm 2.7, God said to David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we've had uh, Adam and we've had Israel as a whole. And we've had David or the, the line of kings as the son of God, that title. So we see the title Son of God and we think God the Son, that is a title of divinity. Uh, It can mean that sometimes and in some places in the New Testament, but most of the time it's saying uh, this is um, what Adam was, this is what Israel was, this is what the king was supremely. And the reason that the genealogy is followed immediately by the temptation of Jesus is because the live question is, is Jesus going to be any better than Adam? Is Jesus going to be any better than Israel? Is Jesus going to be any better than David? And unlike all of them, when presented with temptation, Jesus resists. Uh, No, man cannot live by bread alone, but only by the word of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So where they rejected God's word, now Jesus is going to live under God's word. He is the true people of God. So in the Old Testament, Israel as a whole is compared to a vine. And then Jesus says, John 15, I am the true vine. He is the true people of God. He's also the true place of God in that he refers to himself as the temple. Uh, So you remember the throne room, the place that God uh, rules over his people and from where his word comes out. So Jesus, every word that Jesus speaks is the word of God. Uh, The house, where do you go if you want to meet with God? Well, you go to Jesus because he is the temple. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, tabernacled, literally, among us. Where do you go if you want forgiveness? You used to go to the temple. Now you go to Jesus because he's come to give his life so that we can be forgiven. So he's the true people of God. He's the true place of God. 
and he's the true blessing by God. He personally is loved by God, and then he blesses the world for God. As uh, he's described in uh, John 4 as the saviour of the world. He says, as I'm lifted up, all people will be drawn to me. So God's plan that had been to bless all of the nations of the world is coming to fulfillment and fruition in him. And so the life and ministry of Jesus herald the arrival of the kingdom of God and everything that we've been excited about. Uh, If you flick to uh, chapter 7 of Luke, please. I just want to give us a flavor for how wonderful the kingdom of God is. So Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, the verse I put on the sheet, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is the kingdom, but then Jesus also manifests or establishes the kingdom. I sort of think of it as a bit like um, ripples in a pond when you chuck a stone into it. That as Jesus turns up, uh, he is the kingdom, and then it ripples out from him and grows and spreads. And we get these pictures of what it looks like, what God's kingdom looks like when it comes on earth. So just glance over the, the, the little sections. In uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, sickness is healed. And we're getting a wonderful picture of how, God, how good God's kingdom's going to be. Because Jesus would die on the cross so that all sickness could be dealt with forever. And then in 11 to 16 of chapter 7. Death is defeated. Uh, This will be a kingdom of life because Jesus is going to conquer death forever. And then as you flick over the page in chapter 8, 22 to 25, uh, nature is reordered. In chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, evil is banished. We know, too, that the serpent is crushed. I've put some references on the sheet there for you. We know that good news is proclaimed. And best of all, right in the middle of Luke 7 and 8, sins are forgiven as well. Jesus said to this sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's come to do. This is what his kingdom looks like. And when you're reading the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament, therefore, you're not just reading, oh, look, he's being nice to people. And you're not just reading, oh, look, he's got lots of power. The miracles are operating in, in lots of ways. One of them is that, he's the pr- uh, is that they prove who Jesus is. Um, I've checked this on the, the sheet. So the Old Testament had said, you'll know when God's, servant, king, divine man comes to earth because these are the things that he's going to do. Namely, he's going to make the lame leap for joy. He's going to make the blind see. He's going to unstop the ears of the deaf. And Jesus does it all, uh, the good news proclaimed to the poor, to prove to people that he is the king, the servant, the son of David, the son of Abraham that's been promised all the way through the Old Testament. And they're also, in the bit I've been emphasizing just now, I guess, they're also a little a preview of what the kingdom's going to look like. The ripples of the stone. Um, the, the, the illustration I've used before on this is 
if you're ever going somewhere and you, you, there's a, a new bunch of houses being built, a new housing estate that's being built, the way that they do it, everything is debris all over the place. And then they get one model show home right in the middle of the, the thing because they want to show everybody what it's going to look like when the rest of the estate is finished. And so they make it look super, super pr pretty. And the ambition is that everyone sees it and says, oh, I want to live there. So they buy houses so that they've got money to build the rest of them. So that show home, though, is a picture of what the finished thing is going to look like. And you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the ministry of Jesus on the people around him. It's the show home of the kingdom. This is how glorious the kingdom is going to be. It's not just proving who Jesus is, although it's doing that. Uh, but it's also a preview of the ultimate kingdom of God. And it's also a picture of the great good and blessing that Jesus wants to pour on people's lives. That just as God, that had always been God's intention, so here Jesus sees someone in suffering and he has compassion on them. And so he wants to get rid of it. It's that they're pictures of the way that Jesus deals with people. Uh, we see him healing uh, sickness uh, to show to us that he can deal with our spiritual sickness. We see him raising the dead to show that he can deal with our spiritual death. They're little pictures of the gospel, uh, calling people to himself so that they leave what they're doing uh, and they come and follow him. All of them are little pictures of the work that he does in people's lives spiritually as well. So they're proof, they're preview, and they're picture. And so it goes on. Uh, Jesus fulfills all of the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. No matter how many promises God has made, says 2 Corinthians 1, they are yes in Jesus Christ. So just, uh, I've hinted it already, but just go back to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And if you've not read the Old Testament, you're thinking, okay, when you're starting a gospel... The way that you're going to start the gospel is by telling about the angel appearing to Mary and saying you're having a baby. That's what you think is how the gospel is going to start because that's the start of Jesus' life. But look how he's presented in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So God had promised that he would make of Abraham a great nation with countless descendants. Uh, God had promised that he would take him to a land. God had promised that he would bless the seed of Abraham and that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the world. And so Jesus turns up and he is true humanity. He is true Israel. He's the firstborn of many brothers, as Romans says. Uh, he is the true people of God. He is also the true temple, the way to heaven. He is loved by God and he blesses the world for God. So he is the son of Abraham. He is the one through whom all of the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. And so it's no wonder then, because of this global, uh, all of the nation's purpose that God has had, that Matthew's gospel would end, having started, he's the son of Abraham, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus has come to bless all of the nations of the world. And how is his blessing going to filter out and get to everybody? Answer, it's going to happen 
as the people of God go out and make disciples of all nations, proclaiming the gospel and helping people to come to know him. So he is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He is the Christ who will reign forever. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You remember the promises in 2 Samuel 7? Well, Jesus is proclaimed now as God's promised king. His life demonstrates, as we've said, that he is God's promised king. His resurrection declares to the world that Jesus is God's forever king. Do you remember the promise of um, 2 Samuel 7? This was a kingdom that would be established forever. Well, you can't be a king forever if you die unless you're resurrected from the dead. And so the resurrection is a declaration to the world. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, says Peter in Acts 2.36, both Lord and Christ. He is the anointed forever king. And then he fulfills loads of other promises as well. We've seen loads of priests in the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect priest. Loads of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Uh, Jesus, there's loads of prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus is the one who establishes, uh, inaugurates the new covenant. Do you remember the new peace of sins forgiven for God and forever? New relationship with God, new power from God. Jesus is the final solution to the problem of sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might, in him, you might become the righteousness of God. So we've been looking for God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And all of that is manifest in Jesus. And then we'll see when we look at it tomorrow, grows through Jesus and his word in the lives of others. I think we're going to spend a bit of time, and I think um, you guys are wearying, as indeed am I. So I think we're going to uh, begin to draw stumps there. We're going to have a bit of time for questions, and then I've got some questions that I want you to discuss. Actually, Sammy, what time does this session finish? Quarter past. What we're going to, we're going to do it the other way around then. We're going to get you to do stuff first. Um, Old Testament professors love saying stuff like, the Old Testament is the question, Jesus is just the answer, or Jesus is just like the exclamation mark or exclamation point, is that what we call it, um, at, the, the, at the end of the Old Testament. They love saying that kind of stuff. How true do you think that is? Jesus is the, uh, the Old Testament's the question, Jesus is just the answer. And then how does everything that we've seen this morning expand our understanding of and love of Jesus? Can you chat about that? Um, and then we'll shout out some answers before we uh, stop. Hey team, we're going to, um, I think what we'll do usefully is, uh, I'd love just to hear you reflecting and meditating on your, uh, what you're learning about Jesus uh, for the next few minutes. So as many people as want to, please just say something that you've been struck by, even if it's the same as what someone before you said. That's cool. It would just be lovely to hear you reflecting on uh, any ways in which you're growing an understanding of or appreciation of or love for or devotion to uh, Jesus as you see his purpose, uh, the way that he fits into God's eternal purposes. Anyone brave enough to go first? Yeah, thank you.
We don't um, often think of Jesus as the, as the victor, as the conqueror, but that's one of the ways that the New Testament presents him, that the crusher of the serpent, the one who destroys evil. Um, I think probably we don't talk about it as much because we see so much evil in the world around us still. But the Bible speaks of Satan having been fully defeated on the cross, prince of this world driven out, and that one day he'll be destroyed forever when he's thrown in the lake of burning sulfur. So, yeah, the serpent crusher, the end to all evil, the end to Satan himself. Thank you. Go on, Kira. Thanks. Cheers. Brilliant, thank you. Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus stands firm. It's wonderful, isn't it? Thank you. Yeah. We need his rule and we need his salvation. That's really the big message of the whole Old Testament. We need a king, a perfect king, and we need a perfect saviour. Thank you. really lovely isn't it and so often for the outsider um not for the kind of the, the the big and the bold and the brave you know the the elite of society sometimes it is but very often for the ones who have been forgotten by society it's um and indeed the foreshadowing of it going to all of the nations as well in some places any more for any more last minute before lunch Why don't you just turn back to your uh, groups and just spend some time giving thanks to God for Jesus um, and things that you're learning, even if you haven't wanted to say them out loud. That's all cool. Uh, And then in maybe a couple of minutes, we'll head downstairs for lunch. But let's have a couple of minutes to, to pray.